Welcome to Miyagi Mornings Weekly Recap, a podcast version of our daily video series, Miyagi Mornings. Links to the video version of each segment can be found in the show notes for this episode. These recap episodes are part of the Survival Podcast feed, but are numbered independently as a special weekly edition of our show in all podcast feeds. How's revenge? Daniel San, you look revenge that way. Start by digging to grave. Walk right side, safe. Walk left side, safe. Walk middle, sooner or later, get the squish just like grape. Well, good Monday morning, folks. Jack Spierko here with another episode of Miyagi Mornings. I think this would be 71 if I remember right, but who knows if I remember anything right. We're coming up on our spring workshop, and uh, typical spring workload combined with spring workshop prep. Don't trust anything I say as far as memory today. Um, but you can trust what I'm going to talk about today. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about Bitcoin and Ethereum. A little bit of a different light than we've ever discussed it before. And this stems from a video I watched this morning. It was an interview with Michael Saylor. And if you haven't heard of Michael Saylor, he is the CEO of MicroStrategy. He's the guy that kind of poked Elon Musk about buying Bitcoin. And like six weeks later, Elon announces that he bought like a billion and a half dollars worth of Bitcoin. That guy, the guy that ran a giant seminar and had thousands of Fortune 1,000, 500, Fortune 100 companies send high-level executives to learn more about holding cryptocurrency. That guy, heck. Yeah, there was an interview with him. And it's a brilliant interview, and I really think it's totally worth watching the whole thing. It's a long interview. But the person that shared it, you know, you can link a video so it jumps right to a, a part of the video. They did that, and it was a part where it was supposed to be a big deal about what Sailor's prediction for the price of Bitcoin was. What really did it for me there was his explanation of how he bought Bitcoin, why he bought Bitcoin, and why he did it the way he did it. But there was something else that hit me even harder. It's, a, it's an analogy. Maybe it's been made a hundred times before. I just haven't heard it. You know, I don't sit around all day like doing nothing but, hey, what's going on with Bitcoin today or you know, cryptocurrency? It was the guy doing the interview, and, and I'm sorry, I, I forget his name, but I'll, again, I'll link to his video. And um, he said to Sailor, if, if Bitcoin is digital gold, then to me, what Ethereum is, is digital oil. And I thought about that for a moment. And I guess I should rehash what what people with common sense mean when they say Bitcoin is digital gold. They don't mean it literally is the same as gold. What they mean is it forms the reserve currency for all other cryptocurrency. Because even though that we're not on the gold standard, in a way we are. Like gold is still considered the reserve currency of choice for the rich, the powerful, etc. It's a place that they... They know they can hold a certain amount of value, and they know the underlying value will be protected. And, of course, how do we measure the value of gold today? We don't measure it in how much stuff it will buy. We measure it in dollars. And that's Bitcoin fits that description really, really well. And it also fits the description really, really well in that I don't know that we're going to replace gold ever. I personally see gold as a fundamentally worthless metal on most levels. It is somewhat rare, but it ain't that rare. It has very little utility. About the only real utility it has is it's pretty when you make it into jewelry, and lots of things can be pretty when you make them into jewelry, and we can make something that looks exactly like gold and actually is more durable and doesn't turn green like cheap gold or you know cheap fake gold or it doesn't uh, it doesn't tarnish, it doesn't wear the way that gold does because it's a relatively soft metal. We can make things that are better than gold, but it won't matter. It won't ever be gold. 
And that's why I think Bitcoin, I think that's why it makes sense to say Bitcoin is like gold. In that I don't care what you build in the crypto space. Bitcoin's still Bitcoin. And I think Bitcoin for the foreseeable future is the reserve currency. It will be, like I've said before, when you go to an exchange, there will always be a board to exchange Bitcoin for other cryptos. And most of these other cryptos will never be a board for them to exchange them to other cryptos. Um, now, Ethereum being like oil, at first I uh, bristled at that a little bit. Then I thought about the term gas. So if you're not familiar with Ethereum and the gas concept is there's an expense to move Ethereum, right? Like there is any cryptocurrency, but they refer to it as gas. Specifically, when you have a, a cryptocurrency built on Ethereum, ERC-20 tokens is what you might, the term you might hear th thrown around. And what that is like a token like BAT, basic attention tokens, which are uh, the cryptocurrency of choice for the Brave browser and the Brave organization. Um, it costs a lot of money to move basic attention tokens around. Not because they're inherently flawed in of themselves, but because it requires ether gas on the back end. In other words, all these, not all of them, but many of the competing cryptos out there that have been built over the years, the easiest place for people to build them and know they would do what they're supposed to do has been to build them as ERC-20 tokens on the back of ether. And therefore they require the ether fuel oil to function, to be able to be transferred, et cetera. And that was make them inherently expensive. Well, I started thinking about that and went, will we ever replace oil? When we look at oil as a means by which we produce something like gas or diesel or jet fuel or kerosene, et cetera. Like, can we replace oil? Because I don't think we can replace gold. And my answer to can we replace, replace oil is probably not real fast, but everything's moving in that direction. There is massive sources of energy that remain untapped, and some of it is because oil works so well and so inexpensively, and some of it is because the people that profit from it don't want those other alternatives brought out. That's why they created a whole war for you guys about climate change over a nebulous concept like CO2 instead of actually focusing on real pollution and real problems that come from the extraction of fossil fuels. You know, like sulfur and mercury in our groundwater and all the other damage that's done by the extraction of these materials. No, we're going to focus on the air we breathe. So neither here nor there, but we have alternatives to oil today. Are they as good? No, but they all are, they are legitimate alternatives. They legitimately do the main thing that you want, which is provide you energy to do a thing. So when I think about that, and I say, well, of the two titans, the digital oil and the digital gold, and this is the point of this video, who's more vulnerable to, to industry forces? And remember this, like oil has its dominance because it has it, it, the same with other fossil fuels, gas, coal, right? It has so much embodied energy. It really is difficult, despite my comments, it is difficult to overtake something that has so much embodied energy that's so easy to develop, to refine, and to move. Regardless of its problems, it's very difficult because if we have a coal-fired plant, we turn a light switch on, a light comes on a thousand miles away. And we can rely on that. That's very difficult. So the analogy has its limits, and in the limits lie the weakness of something like Ethereum. So let's start off with the number one weakness of Ethereum as I see it. It was built on a bad model for Ethereum, which is proof of work. There's two camps on the proof of work, proof of stake idea, you know, one's better than the other concept, you know, there's almost a religious-like fervor in their belief in one or the other.
I, I don't agree. I think that both of them have their place. And a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin or a derivative, thus fork, like Bitcoin Cash or Litecoin or whatever, you can make a strong case for why proof of work makes a lot of sense for them. But they really, and I know you can, with Bitcoin Cash and SLP, you can build on top of Bitcoin Cash, but none of them are really designed to be oil, to be fuel for other currencies. Ethereum was designed to be exactly what it is, that fuel, that oil, that gas that runs other projects. And we know that Ethereum, the people behind Ethereum, believe they made the wrong decision to make Ethereum a proof of work token in the first place. How do we know that? Because they're currently busting ass to try to change it to proof of stake. If they really thought that proof of work was a better model, they wouldn't change it. It's like asking someone who converted from one religion to another if they think the first religion was a better faith. Well, if they did, they wouldn't leave. Now, while Ethereum is doing all this work to try to become a proof-of-stake currency to solve the problem with transaction speeds, expenses, the cost of doing business, etc., we have multiple currencies that are competing that are the, the solar panels, right, the windmills, right, the hydroelectric, the geothermals against oil, like Cardano, like Algorand, and to a lesser extent, things like ARC, which in some ways are maybe lesser but better. They have a weakness, I think, in security, but they have an incredible advantage in the concept of point-click blockchain. So the corporation that wants to know if blockchain will work from them can have a working prototype of a blockchain in 45 minutes with no programming ability, right? Ethereum can't do that. And these, these other uh, proof-of-stake currencies, they work for everybody, and they work now, and they work fast. They are the solar panel that you could put on your roof for less money than your electric bill, Right now, if you're comparing them not to oil, but to digital oil, Ethereum, they work better in every measurable way now. But you have something that is incredibly difficult to overcome in any space, but definitely the crypto space and the technology space. First mover advantage. Ether did it first. Ether has the confidence. And Ether's working on a solution that most people are like, well, of course it'll work. Of course it'll work. In fact, most people are probably going, why does it take two years? If somebody can spin up Cardano in six months, why does it take you two years? Well, because you have backwards compatibility issues. You need to make the new Ethereum work with all the old Ethereum stuff and be the new Ethereum at the same time. Otherwise, you just have another fork. See, Ethereum doesn't want another fork. They don't want Ethereum Classic, 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 rebranded Classic, right? They want Ether 2.0. They basically want the new Ethereum to replace the old Ethereum. So there's hundreds, if not thousands of projects built with the integration of the ERC-20 token. And they need to make sure that it works with all the old tech. Think about it like this. Oil, how about cars and, and, and what have you? What if when, you know, we were building automobiles... We had to make sure they were compatible with the horse and buggy, in a way. That sounds crazy, because, well, why would you? But, in this case, you have to. What if you had to build a Model T, so it was designed that you could just hook a horse up to it, and it would work perfectly the way a properly designed carriage for a horse works? This is the challenge for Ether. While they're doing this, all these other upstarts are breaking their necks to make their product better 
than Ether will be if they pull off fixing it the way that they claim they will. Here's the thing. doesn't mean Ether won't win. Because there are people that are invested so deeply now that creating an alternate chain on one of these other products is so complicated. It's like you've built a house. What is going to be easier for you? What makes more sense? Add on to it or tear it to the ground and completely rebuild it. Many of these people feel this way. I've made this analogy with WordPress. WordPress is the most popular blogging platform in the world. I run my site on it. I'm not going to lie. To me, it is the easiest thing in the world to use. That's because I've been using it for, what, 15 freaking years since it was invented. Maybe it's not 15. Maybe it's more like 12. I don't know. But the podcast will be 13 years old in June, and I built the podcast on it. So it's at least 13 years in June, and I know I was using it before then for at least a few years. So 15 years. So because I've learned all the little quirks as they came up, as new features were added of WordPress, like to me, it's like, this is simple. You put somebody on WordPress that's never used it before, like, what the hell is this? Why am I dealing with it? What is this shit over here? Like, they don't understand. It takes some effort. However, I believe you could put six good programmers into a garage, and in six months, they would come out with a blogging platform far more intuitive, designed to work with all of WordPress's existing plugins, right, and have their own plugin strategy. Right, so or some some little twerk that could be done to any existing plugin, so it would be compatible over here, kind of like Brave and Chrome, right? The same base code but different output product. And I'll tell you what would happen: the majority of people starting a website are still going to use WordPress, and the people already on WordPress are going to be hard pressed to move. And the reason is going to be there's this massive number of developers that know WordPress, PHP, MySQL. They know those three things; they can do anything with WordPress. So. If I am an, if I'm a person opening up a new website and I have this incredible array of people ready to do it for me, to do any of the stuff I can't do for myself, I'll deal with it, the clunkiness. But the innovative new person is going to go, wait a minute. Assuming you're going to do something like a team blog or something, you have like 20 people working on it or something, you know, putting their own content out, like a news site. This will be faster and more efficient long term. And they're going to use the new technology. And then you're going to have a coexistence. And that's what I see with a lot of these alt currencies and alt chains, if you want to call them that. But I think one of the things we really need to remember when it comes to Ethereum, Bitcoin, and any of the older proven trusted cryptos, they have that advantage and it will be difficult to ever, ever wrestle it away from them. But we're in a world of tech here. This is a technology race. And the technology underlying Bitcoin is over 11 years old now. If it was 1950 and it was 11 years old, it's not that big of a difference when it comes to computing power and things like we're talking about as far as technology goes. 1941 car, 1951 car, not that different. Go look what a car built in 2021 has tech built into it compared to a car built in 2010, just 11 years ago. It is incredible, the difference. That's what these new technologies are doing. They're bringing that level of 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 innovation to the concept of fueling other blockchains. So what does that mean? That means that I'm going to continue to stay mostly invested in Bitcoin and Ethereum, but I'm not going to avoid the I'm not going to ignore the other spaces, and I don't think you should either. You know, there's one thing that all of these leave out though that's really important to me. And right now I only see two currencies that do it right. And those are Monero and R, and that's privacy. We'll talk about that maybe at the end of the week. For the rest of the week, we'll talk about things other than cryptocurrency. Take care, guys. 
Hello, guys and gals. Welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 72. What do we got for you guys today? We're answering another question from MeWe. If you want to participate in Miyagi Mornings, the easiest way to likely get your question or issue uh, talked about, get over to MeWe, friend me up. I will accept that probably within a day at the most, and then there is a sticky post at the top of my profile. Post your, your uh, question or issue in the comment thread there, and we'll try to get to it. Today was an interesting one uh, that I found when I started perusing through, and you know, like a buffet, and picking and choosing what I wanted to talk about. And it was, uh, in my mind, what is the difference between entrepreneur and business owner? And uh, I have to say this is something I haven't really put a lot of thought into in the past. And uh, so I decided to see, well, what do other people say about this? And then I looked it up, and I'm like, I totally disagree with that. And that's, that's why you tune into Miyagi Mornings, right? Because you don't get the same bullshit you get from everywhere else. What I found were a bunch of basically regurgitated uh, articles uh, that all said kind of the same thing. Um, that are probably designed so that they can sell advertising and get traffic due to search engine optimization. Uh, it didn't seem like the person writing them, uh, you know, I read like several of them, and it didn't seem like there was an original thought in any one of them, except maybe the first one that everybody else emulated. And their basic assertion was that if you're a business owner, that just means you have an enterprise, you own a business. And uh, to that, I, I mean, I agree with that. Obviously, if you own a business, if you are uh, an owner or majority owner or sole owner of a business that is registered as a business that operates as a business, you are a business owner. Where I kind of differed with them is when they talked about, well, what it doesn't mean to be an entrepreneur. And to them, an entrepreneur was a, uh, a Steve Jobs or Richard Branson. Someone that wants to innovate and build the next mega corporation, right? If you're not trying to change the world, you're a business owner, not an entrepreneur. That's the biggest pile of bullshit I ever heard in my life. And if you look at the title of today's video, you'll see it's entrepreneur versus business owner versus investor. And I thought by bringing investors in, I could give you a little bit better understanding of where I'm coming from in answering this question. So let's start out with what I think makes a person an entrepreneur. To me, entrepreneurship is mindset. It's mindset. I agree somewhat with the innovative concept that if you're trying to build the next great thing or create the next great thing out of thin air or take something and alter it and change the entire fabric of an economy, you probably are an entrepreneur. But I, I think it's kind of like when we talk about polymaths and they give people like you know Leonardo da Vinci is an example of a polymath. And, and like if you're not a da Vinci, you're not a polymath. That's a retarded. I'm sorry, it is. That's like saying that if I uh, if I train every day. Uh, in, in martial arts, and I, I'm an amateur mixed martial arts fighter. I'm not actually a mixed martial arts fighter unless I'm, you know, in UFC in the top ten or something. Like, you know, every, and, or I'm not a martial artist. Let's think about it that way. Like, unless you are, like, you know, Bruce Lee or some shit, you're not a martial artist. If you know, we have millions of people who would call themselves martial artists accurately. So I think entrepreneurship. You, you have eight year olds walking around that are being entrepreneurs. Because it's about the mindset. So, you know, I almost want to say it's kind of like libertarianism and anarchy. Like, you know, you say all anarchists are libertarians, but not all libertarians are anarchists. But it's not necessarily the case. I would say most entrepreneurs are business owners. But many business owners are not entrepreneurs. Maybe it would be a way to alter it. So here's what I mean by that. If you got a kid that starts looking around his neighborhood and realizes, like, there's these guys... And they, they drive a truck with a trailer, and they bring a lawnmower, and they mow lawns. And he's like, I wonder how much they get for that. So he goes over and talks to his neighbor, and is like, Mr. Mr. Smith, like, how much money do you pay those guys? 
to cut your grass. And Mr. Smith's like, $50 every time they cut my grass. And that kid's like, your lawn's not that big, and I got a lawnmower right there. I'll do it for $25. That kid's an entrepreneur. He doesn't own a business. But remember what business ownership is in our world today. It is, you have declared under a legal structure that you own a business. That kid, if he's smart and he keeps kind of side hustling his way through life, he's probably going to be a business owner at some point, um, one way or another. And he may actually have tons of little side hustles kind of as a conglomerate, never actually declare it a business, and never pay any taxes on it if he's a, like a purist agorist. And um, he's still an entrepreneur to me because it's a mindset of hustle. So let's look at a business owner that I would declare most likely, most likely, because I can't judge the individual. I'm just saying out of the group, most likely not really very entrepreneurial. Would tend to be somebody like a franchise owner. Uh, specifically a franchise owner of something you know big and really set in stone, a McDonald's, a Domino's, right? Uh, or even like a mechanic shop like um, uh, Quick Car, I think, is a franchise, right? So when, you, when you're a franchiser, you know, you, franchisee, right, you basically buy a business in a box, so to say. So you get a loan and you, you, you buy this business and it, it, it tells you everything that you're supposed to do exactly the way that you're supposed to do it. Now, I'm not saying you can't be an entrepreneur and own franchises. I'm saying if the only thing you do as a business owner is open up a single franchise for Quick Car or Domino's, you're probably not very entrepreneurial in your mindset. What you're looking for is kind of a guaranteed ROI. In some ways, you're an investor, but you're an active working investor working in and on your own business. And the reason I'd say it's not very entrepreneurial is it is, by its very definition, extremely limited in what you can do in order to grow your business. So basically, you have a mothership that tells you this is where, like if you're a quick car, you're going to buy your oil from here, and it's probably us. You're going to pay us a royalty fee on every you know oil change you do. This is where you're going to get your filters. This is where you're going to get all your equipment. This is the type of building that you have to have. And in many franchises, if you decide, hey, you know what, I could make money by adding this service, you can't, right? Or you almost have to like break off a piece of your building and say that's separate, right, to to please the mothership. So it's going to stifle entrepreneurship. I remember a talk that Gary Vanderchuk did many, many years ago at the Web 2.0 conference, one of the first ones in New York City. And he said, I talked to a whole bunch of uh, Domino's Pizza employees yesterday, and I told them, you're fucked. You can't do anything that I teach at all. Bring back the Noid was the only advice he had for them, right? And, and, and that's kind of where I'm coming from with business owners are people that have this single enterprise, but they also are only focused on that, and they also could be investors. That's why I wanted to bring this in, in that you can own a business or own a piece of a business and basically not touch it, and then you're an investor. And, and I also want to talk about people that think they're investors and they're not. So I think a person who evaluates anything, whether it's a business, a cryptocurrency, a stock, um, anything, and says, I'm going to take my money, I'm going to put it in here, and I'm looking for the return of investment against this investment. Like the pot, I talked about this on the podcast yesterday. That, that, that person is an investor. I think a person who contributes 5% or 10% to their 401k owns investments, but they're not an investor. They have no idea. Most people like that. And if you have a financial advisor, hopefully a good one, they're the investor that you've hired. You're not an investor. You just have money you've saved and somebody else is doing something with it. An investor actively goes out and controls their investments. Otherwise, you know, right now I have some guys outside building a table for me on my outdoor kitchen. 
I'm not a table builder just because I hired them to build one, right? That's how I kind of look at investing. Unless you're actively doing it, you're not the investor. You're hiring an investor on your behalf. And if you're just throwing your money in mutual funds, you don't even know who that is, right? You don't, you don't have anybody. You can't even have a discussion with that person. You have some advisor that, that was handed your corporate account that you see like once every two years when they change the 401k and tells you to fill out the forms and tell you you're going to work till you're 70, right? That, that's not investing. That's owning investments. And I think there's a lot of people that are business owners that, that that's how they own a business. They don't actively manage, run, they didn't found, they didn't develop, they didn't build the business. And when you get into uh, franchisees and, and kind of tunnel vision business owners, you're kind of in a, in, in, right in an overlap. You're kind of entrepreneurial, but you're really not. Because the entrepreneur is always figuring out, how can I do more? So a person could own a single business, and it's not a mega corporation, and they may be a hell of an entrepreneur. Okay, they may be constantly figuring out how to do more with what they have. Let's take it another way, though. Let's say a person that doesn't own a business, at least on paper, at all. Let's say somebody has a piece of property, and they're like, you know what? I've got some room on this property. I think what I'm going to do, I'm going to break off like a half acre over there. I'm going to put in like five campsites. I'm going to make them really, really nice, and I'm going to put them out on hip camp. And I'm going to use that to make my property pay for part of itself. I also talked about this on the podcast yesterday. That's entrepreneurship. Because that's seeing the opportunity where other people do not. To me, that is the essence of entrepreneurship. Can you look at, can two people look at the same thing? Or can 20 people look at the same thing? Or maybe even 100. Entrepreneur, real entrepreneurs are rare. You get 100 people that look at it and go, oh, that's nice, piece of land. And you get one guy that's like, hmm. The guy that does this when everybody else is like this there's your entrepreneur, right? That's your entrepreneur. Your entrepreneur is the person that's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I learned how to like propagate plants and I'm on next door looking for like a free freezer or something because people give those away and I see all these people talking about planting shit. Holy shit, I could just go out and grow a whole bunch of plants, put them on next door and sell them and I'm going to get money for free. That's entrepreneurship. So, an entrepreneur, yes, may be the guy like Branson that goes into everything from vodka to airlines, but it also can just be the guy you never hear of. And in some ways, that is the perfect agorist. The perfect agorist is a person you don't know their name. They're not Jack Spirico who's on the Internet every day advertising what they do. They're the guy that's like the, 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 the old, like I knew this dude that I met through a friend of a friend. We were hunting on, on property he owned. He, he owned the property. He leased it to a company that my friend worked for for hunting. And this guy was in bib overalls. He was about six foot two, bit overweight, older gentleman. And if you've ever heard the song from Montgomery, I think it's Montgomery Gentry, where he says something like, see that old man there on the porch? He can buy your fancy car with $100 bills. He's literally that dude. The guy owns massive amounts of property. He's leasing it all out, both for timbering, for the pine industry, and for hunting, and for other things. And he's got a hundred little things he's doing, but I doubt he owns a company. He may own a company that owns land, but it's not in the business of doing these things. I guarantee you there's a whole lot of the stuff that goes on that isn't hundred dollar bills. It's entrepreneurship. You know, and so that I think is something that, that people really need to get their heads around if they want to have success in the modern world. You can be a business owner and you can be an investor or you can be an investor that is investing in owning businesses. Right? You can do all of those things and you can be okay. But if you want the control 
to be able to adapt to change. Let's let's look at it this way. So Quick Car is a franchise for changing oil in cars. We have a move toward electric vehicles. Let's say we speed up that move. And a lot of the maintenance that's being done on conventional motors, because this isn't going away anytime soon, don't get me wrong, but let's just say that we're at the point where it really does start to go away. You're kind of at the mercy of quick car of the mothership to figure out when to innovate and start offering new services. You can't just freely start doing it. If I'm wrong about quick car, if they're less controlling than that, and you're a franchise, you don't get pissed at me. Most franchises would be that way. When Ray Kroc took over the McDonald's, bought out the McDonald brothers and started rolling out McDonald's across the whole world, he would go to individual franchises without telling them he was coming. And if he saw like somebody put up, like we're selling tamales or something because they're in South Texas, he would flip his shit and threaten to strip the guy of his franchise rights. Because you only sell and you only do what I, what I say. So in that situation, it's very hard to adapt. You can maybe advertise your location, but even that is controlled in how you can do it. And there's so many people that are in businesses that maybe don't have that control, but they've allowed that level of control into their lives through their own mental weakness. So we've always done it this way. And this, this takes me to where when I used to consult, I would just walk away from a client. The, the minute that person said to me, well, it'll be better when, when, when times pick up. I'm like, well, I can't help you. I'm done. And it'll be this, what? Like, I'm done. Right? Because first of all, if you're just waiting for times to get better, why'd you hire a consultant? You're wasting your money if that's what you're going to do. Because I know whatever I tell you to do now, you're not going to do it. You're going to wait for times to get better, right? That doesn't work. That's why today's a brilliant time to start a business. Everyone wants to start a business when times are great. When you build a business during tough times, you build a business that soars during great times and survives tough times. We're going to be talking more about that today in today's podcast. So if you like this line of thinking, tune in. Today's podcast is going to be uh, being bold in the face of fear. I don't think there's been a better time in history to build something for yourself than right now. With that, I will come back tomorrow with a totally different topic from Yagi Mornings. And remember, if you want to suggest a topic, MeWe is the way. Hey folks, welcome to episode 73 of Miyagi Mornings, and uh, I'm hoping, you know, I've always tried to do Miyagi Mornings as a non-political thing, and I'm hoping no one takes this one politically, but I'm sure some will, and well, some people can't be helped. I want to ask you guys a question today. You guys usually ask me questions. I have a question for you, then I'm going to give you my thoughts on it, but I'm, I'm going to ask this question, I want you to sit and I want you to really think about it. I'm almost 50 years old, so if you're in my range you know, five, ten years, uh, either side of it. I want you to ask this question of yourself. What would your grandparents think of us today and how we've responded to this COVID crisis with so much fear and so much willing compliance to just things that are completely out of thin air where they come up with these ideas like, well, you have to say six feet apart. Before you start defending that decision, let me tell you where that six-foot number comes from. It comes from a scientist who came up with that number yeah, he was a scientist. Uh, he's been dead over 100 years. It's just this arbitrary number that they picked. This this masking. The masking's going to save millions and millions of lives, but we're still going to have millions and millions of people die in the United States. We're supposed to have 2 million people die. I mean, a half a million, and, and, and over, over half of them were at least 8 years old in the median life expectancy in the United States. 
and we just willingly comply. We mask our children. We make them stay away from their friends. We stay away from our family. I know a lot of you don't. I didn't. I've never complied with any of this shit. I'm just saying, like, how would your grandparents view us in our willingness to lay down like dogs in front of the people that are supposedly in authority? Now, when I, I want you to do something for me if you're a little bit younger. I want you to just try to think about your grandparents, but then think about what it took to raise them. And, and, and so in your realm of age, you would be your great-grandparents. How would they feel about the way that people are behaving right now? I, I find the entire thing really disturbing. And this isn't about politics. It's about obedience to the point that human beings, to me, seem to be, the best word I could describe the average person today, is domesticated. We've become domesticated like a cow. To me, human beings are supposed to be feral. And what spawned today's episode was a comment on MeWe. Um, and it was in the post for this, but it wasn't really done in the form of a question. It was more of a response to some things I said on the podcast. And the person said, in your you know your thoughts about kids and, and seemingly enjoying wearing masks and things like that, I'll get to that in a second, do you think maybe they're actually more resilient than we give them credit for? And they're tougher than we think, and they have like some sort of evolutionary adaptive thing going on that they just go along with everything. And I, no, I don't. This is what disturbs me. I see families out to eat, and I see mom, dad, etc., you know, eating. So they take their freaking mask off. And I see children, especially boys in their early teens, like 12 to 14, with their mask like on their chin while they're eating and smiling and being happy about it and like you know they finish eating they put their mask back on I'll tell you exactly what I think's done that to kids your freaking school system guys they that's how they eat in their lunchroom six feet away from their friends they've been conditioned they're easier to condition because they're in the conditioning system every freaking day and there's never been a time in history where the conditioning of our children has been higher than right now for the love of God if you can in any way shape or form get your kids out of these freaking state run institutions that you've been told are public schools they're not public schools they're government schools they're not public about them you think they're public then just see if you can go down there and walk in the door you can't they've controlled access they're a state-run institution. They're government education centers. That's what they are. Government programming centers. Government indoctrination centers. And they're destroying our children. And I know some of you are like, why can't you just let the kid... If the kid's happy with it, why don't you let him be happy? Because he shouldn't be. Because he shouldn't be. If I saw a kid like playing with dog shit, and he was just happy with it, I'd stop him because it's dangerous. Right? You can get diseases and illnesses, actual real ones. Our children are the least at risk of any member of our society from this freaking virus, which is just basically a bad cold for 99% of people, and that is by the numbers fact. And we have let them destroy our lives and the lives of our children and train our children into compliance. Look at here. You see this? This is what makes you an individual. This is what makes people look at you and go, oh, that's Jack, that's John, that's Bill, that's Tommy, that's Sandy, that's Susie. This is who we are. This is who we are. This is our personal identity. It's been stripped from us. It's been stripped from us. And I have deep fear 
for the next generation of young men. Deep fear. Because this started way before this shit. Kids that are in their 20s now, I remember just meeting people's children, especially their young males, 10 to 14, and felt like I was talking to a girl. And I don't mean that, you know, the whole transgender bullshit. I don't mean any of that. I mean, the kid's a normal boy, but they just sound weak and soft and gentle. Like they're half the age that you would expect them to. They're not rough and tumble freaking boys. This is dangerous because I'll tell you what it results in. You either end up with men that are complete freaking pussies, or you end up with men that are extremely violent. And yes, it is all connected to each other. When you emasculate young males, which is clearly what's happened, and continues to happen, it continues to be advanced. When you emasculate young males, as they grow and develop, a certain portion of them rebel against it, and without the right male guidance in their life, they become inherently, dangerously, and uncontrollably violent. Tell me we haven't seen that. Or they become total pussies. And then you end up with an entire generation of men that are violent thugs and complete pussies who can't defend their family. And I know some of you are thinking, he's, he's gone too far now. No, I haven't. Probably not gone far enough. When you listen to these kids, and they, I mean, I don't mean to insult anybody, but you know, you listen to these kids that are like 12 years old. And you know what they made me think of? They made me think of like an early 80s interview with Michael Jackson. Just that gentle little... What the hell? And I don't care if it's one here and one there, and that's just their personality. That's not what I'm talking about. The person actually has that personality. God bless them. They'll probably have some wonderful gift that comes from it. But when the majority of young males sound like that, act like that, comply with everything they're asked to comply with, we have a problem. We have a very serious problem. And I'm going to tell you the story that I've told on the podcast a few times, the story of the elephants. And, and, and it should scare the shit out of you when you fully understand this. So long ago we decided there were too many elephants based on how much of their habitat we destroyed in Africa. And the solution became culling ev elephants, just basically going out and shooting elephants and killing them by the, by the thousands and tens of thousands, um, not for the ivory trade now, for their own good. And what happened is initially they killed off like old males, and even old females were beyond reproduction age, and then they would have to come down to some younger ones as well, but hey, you know, it was just kind of like, hey, you know, these ones had a good long life, it's time for them to go and make room for others. That's the sick twisted mindset that they had. Instead of like, fix the habitat and like, let animals you know, live in the habitat they're supposed to, no, we'll just start killing them. But here's what happened. And they killed off all the old males, which had already been heavily killed off due to ivory hunters uh, to begin with they started to lose a natural occurrence known as bachelor herds so the males will actually get together and they call them bachelor herds I mean it doesn't mean that they haven't bred or anything but they kind of just all the males get together and for a time every season they leave they go off to do male things I know that's crazy in this world but animals don't read your gender books okay and they don't get offended by Dr. Seuss either so they would go off, and it was basically like when I was a kid, your great uncles took you hunting and fishing, kind of like that, elephant camp for the young men. 
You know, once that elephant grew to the point where he was no longer really a calf, but he was kind of a teenager. Because elephants live long enough. The teenager elephants are about like teenager kids. The males started taking them with them. And like young men, they would get violent, they would do some stupid shit, and the older males would beat the crap out of them. Not like into the ground or anything, but like, you know, when you're, you got somebody that's that's 25% bigger than you, and the power of an elephant, thump your ass with a, 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 a trunk or, a, you know, give you a poke with a tusk, you're like, oh, okay. Well. So this went on, and this had gone on for as long as there's been elephants, longer there were humans. And in the range, the African elephants did very little damage to, like, villages and stuff like that. They didn't cause much trouble. There were some problems in there. Actually, a big animal. They get violent at times. But overall, there was pretty much peace between humans and elephants. If anything, we were the violent ones killing them, and they still were fairly peaceful critters. So, like, if a young male started, like, going into, like, a village or something to tear shit up, the older males were like, dude, no. We don't do that. They understood the balance. You're talking about an animal that could be 75 years old or older. They have when any critter that's that been around that long and the intelligence level of an elephant. Elephants have fucking graveyards, people. Anything that buries its dead and lives that long and goes back and visits its dead and rem has remorse for its dead is a wise animal. So they had this wisdom. And these older males had this toughness about them. And they put the youngsters in line so that by the time the old, uh, the old patriarchs died, the next generation of the older patriarchs were ready to take over. And this worked for generations beyond humanity. Something happened, no? When they went on this culling spree and they killed off all the old men, the young males banded together in gangs in their bachelor herds. And they started, like, going into villages and smashing shit or grabbing human beings and smashing them into the ground with their trunks. I've even seen video footage of a guy that got smashed and the elephant went down on its knees and used its head to basically rub him into the dirt like you might, you know, rub a cockroach into the woodwork. And eventually we stopped doing this and we started protecting them again and restoring some of their habitat. And as the young violent males aged out the ones that made it the bachelor herds began to return to their normal purpose and a lot more pieces come to the worlds where elephants and humans coexist once again what's that make you think of if it doesn't make you think of all this shit where we make out and I'm not putting anybody down here but we have made single motherhood into a heroic act When you make something into a heroic act, you get more of it. And we have so many young men growing up without a tough-ass guy in their life guiding their footsteps through that period in time. And on top of it, even where we don't have broken families, we have now generations of men that have been raised to be pussies that have no idea how to do this anymore. That's the world we live in today. And it's designed to be the world that we live in today. And I'm big on solutions. So all I'm going to tell you is you don't have to participate in this shit and don't let your kids participate in this shit. I'm not talking about turning men into little thugs. I'm talking about preventing them from becoming thugs on the other side of this stuff. Because unless you fill them up with puberty blockers or some shit because there's something wrong in your head, they're going to go through that process. They're going to mature. And if they don't have the guidance and they haven't had the outlet for being innately male, you're going to get pussy or thug on the other side of it 90% of the time 90% of the time I have been I have honest to God folks I have been shocked 
in meeting people's 10, 12-year-old males and just going, what the hell? What the hell? I'm not talking about how they dress or wearing their hair long. I don't give a shit about stuff like that. I wore When I was a kid, I was a kid in the 80s. We wore our hair down past our shoulders as long as we could until somebody made us cut it, right? I don't mean that. I'm talking about the clothes they wear. I'm talking about the way they talk. I'm talking about the way they behave. I'm talking about this inward reclusiveness. And I'm not talking about introverts being introverts. Again, if that's your personality, that's one thing. When the vast majority of these young men just don't act flipping normal. And I'm sorry, but normal in this context is a thing. And now you're ramping it up with this, basically, I think that... The post-COVID America, we, we're, we're basically through this, guys. We've got to stop pretending that this is March last year and we don't know yet. We know who's at risk. We know who's not. We've had probably a hundred million, about a third of the people in this country have had this disease and can't get it anymore or spread it. There's a shitload of people who have an immunity to it in the first place. We need to stop pretending this is all not true. But no. It's been used to create what I would call a national obedience contest. The most virtuous among us are the ones that are most compliant and most obedient. It's time to stop. It's not political. It's about the human condition. It is not natural. It is not normal for young people to stay away from each other, to cover their face, and to be completely compliant and obedient. I'm sorry it isn't. And it's up to you guys that have kids out there. I hear all these things about why people can't homeschool their kids. If your kid was in a building that was on fire and no one else was going to save them, if you had to, you'd throw a wet blanket over you and risk your life and possibly come out with third-degree burns, but you'd get your damn kid out of that building. If you think that the current public education system is any less dangerous to the long-term well-being of your child, you're just not paying attention. I'll be back tomorrow with another one. Well, hello there, guys and gals of Interwebs land. Um, we're back for Miyagi Mornings, episode 74. Uh, quick announcement, there will be a Miyagi Mornings tomorrow, like you would expect, five a week. There will not be any next week at all. I am... of my attention to getting ready for all these people that are about to show up for some pretty cool projects and builds. So just so you know that, and one other thing to expect is on Saturday mornings, I put out the Miyagi Mornings um, recap podcast, where I take all the five podcasts from the week and I put them out in audio only so you can listen to them in the podcast. You know, some of you listen to both, some of you pick and choose videos, but listen to the podcast uh, version. Uh, that's going to go out on Monday. So just so you know, that's going to give me one more podcast filler for the week that I am just not available. Anyway, so what are we going to talk about today? Another great question for MeWe. You guys, you got to get on MeWe if you want to be able to ask the questions that are most likely to get on Miyagi Mornings. Anyway, this person said, I have trouble sleeping sometimes, and I'm turning more and more to herbal teas. I would like a good recommendation for herbs that I can grow in my own herbal tea garden that will help me with sleep. And I, I love this question. I, a lot of people don't know this about me. I actually studied formally in, in the world of herbology for quite a long period of time 
before I kind of decided I wasn't going to do that professionally, so I didn't need to keep going with it. Um, it was one of my, and remains one of my true passions, is herbs. And I really like working with herbs that are completely safe, that people can't really overdose on or cause any problems with, and then being a little careful with a few things that maybe are really useful. We need to drop in for some other things here and there. Um, but I think that herbs are a natural, innate human right of health. And I believe they are a gift from nature. And if you believe in God, and I do in my own way, a gift from God to humanity. That's how I feel about it. So I love this question. Um, I also want to, before we begin, though, tell you there's two ways that I see something like an herbal tea helping people go to sleep at night. One is there are herbs that have certain specific reactions or, or, or herbal actions, actually, is what I should put it. We're the ones that react. They have actions that cause our reactions that are somewhat depressant, and I mean that in a positive way, or they simply remove excess stimulation and things like that, and they can help us sleep, and I'll, I'll give you some of those today. As long, however, though, that we're not using something that is a specifically biochemically a stimulant, there's a second way that a tea helps a person lay down, close their eyes, and actually go to hell to sleep instead of think about everything else in the world. And to me, it may be as important or maybe more important in some ways than the biochemical uh, herbal action that occurs. And it is ritual. It is ritual. And I think that you can have any sort of ritual that begins about 30 minutes before your head hits the pillow. I think completely vegging out on some stimulating TV thing is probably not the right thing. Maybe it's 15 minutes if you just don't want to take away a whole half hour of boob tube time or whatever. Uh, and that, that ritual, the more consistent it is, the more it will work. So if you think about making tea, it's very ritualistic. We get the herbs and we get them and we put them in the infuser and we heat the water to the preferred temperature for what we're making. We pour it over. We get an aroma. It's those aromatic oils are released. We smell that. We know that the taste is coming. If we're using honey or whatever, we sweeten it. I like to use stevia to sweeten my teas and I like them sweet just a little tiny bit, especially a nighttime tea. I don't need a lot of sweetness in them. Um, to me, a little bit of sweetness actually brings the other flavors out, kind of like salt does on your food. And then that tea is probably a little bit too hot to immediately really drink. So we take that little bitty sip and we start to contemplate the fact that we're at the end of our day. And that ritual, and I, you know, I've talked to like when my father-in-law was in elder care facilities, they call it sundowning. They do the same thing with, with memory care patients where they start to put them through a ritual, just like you do with your kids. And, you know, I know we're not kids, but that doesn't mean that the same things that work for us as children do not work for us as adults. We just have to be disciplined enough to do them for ourselves. So you think of your kid, you got story time at bed, whatever it is you do that kind of starts that, that, that descent into sleep. We can do that for ourselves. And we probably should do that for ourselves. And if you think about a time before everything had a bell and a whistle, we, we probably did as humans have certain rituals. So for me, part of my ritual is going out and put the ducks to bed, walking the property, things like that. That's well before bedtime. But it also kind of tells my body through my circadian rhythm, hey, we're moving into this time now. So just, I thought that would be helpful beyond just, hey, take this thing and knock yourself out, right? Because if we're actually using any chemical substance, even a relatively safe one, to knock us out, 
and we're only relying on that. We're creating a chemical dependency no matter how natural it is. All right, so let's talk about the herbs, and I've got them all listed in the video notes because sometimes people don't understand what you're pronouncing or whatever, or not sure. This way you can Google it, look it up, find seeds, plant sources, etc. So I like to have like reliable things, things that I just know are gonna grow. I can't kill it if I want to, unless I sprayed it with Roundup, which doesn't enter my property. Um, I, I like having those reliables. And to me, the mints are the most, as long as you keep mint reasonably in reasonable, with some reasonable fertility and moisture, it is going to grow. And propagating is usually easy as pinching a piece off and sticking it in a glass of water or even wet soil with some shade, right? Now, people think, well, mint is mint, but the mint family is enormous. And my four go-to mints for tea in order are peppermint, pick your variety. It can be orange peppermint, it can be chocolate peppermint, it can be peppermint, peppermint, whatever. They all pretty much taste and have that very minty flavor that we generally associate when you hear the word mint. Great herb. But I also, in the same family, is lemon balm. And lemon balm has a completely different flavor profile. It's lemony, right? And it is actually useful as an insect repellent. I like things to be multitaskers, right? So lemon balm, if you have a big patch of it, and you should, you can just, like, when you're getting bothered by mosquitoes, grab a couple handfuls of leaves, rub it on your hands, rub it on your face and your neck. And I'm not going to say it'll keep every mosquito away from you, but it will reduce, you know, mosquito attacks. So... That is a great secondary use. It has this incredible flavor. And again, it likes a, like a little bit of mixed shade and sun, and it just grows and grows and grows. You propagate your brains out with it. Next is bee balm. Uh, bee balm is also known as um, uh, the uh, Morinda, I think is how you say it. And um, God, I'm, I'm drawing a blank here. Um, uh, it, it's a, the tea. Uh, Earl Grey tea uses uh, an orange oil. And I, I, that word has just gone out of my mind. Um, but it's, it's also known as, as wild bergamot, wild bergamot. Ah, where was that from? Um, and the reason is that bee balm has that same velvety characteristic that oil of bergamot orange has that they infuse Earl Grey tea with. So it gives that velvety texture. It also smells good. Great big flowers, brings in pollinators. Awesome. Easy to pollinate. And you know, all of these like spread. So you have to, Put them somewhere where you don't mind them kind of spreading and taking over, or you're willing to do a lot of control. And the last one in the mint family would be spearmint, which has a totally different impact, a softer impact than like a peppermint. With those four, you can make great teas with nothing else. I'm not gonna give you, I'm gonna give you more, but I mean those are fantastic. And all of them are useful for kind of sundown ritual. They have no real stimulant in them. They also have no real depressant, and it's a crazy thing. They are among a class of herbs that we can use in tea form, that if you use that in the morning, it helps wake you up. And if you use it at night, it helps put you to sleep, partly because of ritual and partly because the body knows what it needs and takes what it needs. So if we're in the right mindset to be waking up, it will use the things that are refreshing to be more awake and alert. And if we're in the process of sundowning, it helps us in that direction. Next up, one I don't grow, but you should if you get good results with it. I just don't get enough out of my efforts to make it worth growing is chamomile. And so I, I found out that organic chamomile is not that expensive. You can buy it by the pound, and that's enough for a year and a half. So I just buy it. But chamomile is another herb that is, it's got that buttery texture. It goes great with those uh, mints in, in various different mixes. Um, it, it has multiple uses. We use, since I can get it so cheaply, I'll throw a little handful in some water. When I soak sunflower seeds to grow sprouts for the ducks, it prevents mold. 
It's a, if you can grow it in, in large quantities, it's great for pollinators, etc. cetera. Uh, so uh, whether it's the, uh, the German or the other chamomile, both of them are great and have very similar uh, actions for the human body. I believe, though, one is perennial and one's not. So you can take that if you're able to grow both of them. Uh, fennel. Fennel's an herb that we think of as like for seasoning Italian sausage, or we think of the bulbs of fennel as a roasted vegetable. The fronds of fennel are licorice and kind of a little bit sweet, and they're delicious, and you prick them off, and they just grow back, like dill. It's like dill that grows much longer term. And so I love fennel. My favorite variety is a variety called Florence, and I grow it as a multitask. So I see it a bulb as a roasted vegetable, and I get the fronds to use for salads and for teas. So fennel is another great one. It's also a good evening uh, addition. Uh, ginger. Ginger may be something you can or can't grow depending on where you are, but it's definitely a great uh, addition to teas. It gives it a kind of zing to it. I wouldn't use too much of it for an evening tea, but a, a single a small slice of it infused into a tea or some dried ginger would be great as well. I grow ginger. I have no problem growing it here at all. If you can grow your own ginger, you can partake in baby ginger, which is just, it's, it doesn't really have to be that small to be baby ginger. It's usually the roots are about the size of my hand when I harvest them, and they kind of grow in this long rhizome. It's really a rhizome, not a root. And you harvest it before it puts the hard skin on it. Now it's not going to store well, but you take the entire plant and you use it like lemongrass, and it's good in teas, especially the leaf part. The stems are better cooked into like stews and curries and stuff. And then the, the, the white ginger is so freaking delicious in tea and in other ways. And if you freeze it, it keeps all through the winter. And all you have to do is grow a few out and store those in a cool, dry place and replant them, and you might as well be perennial. So ginger. Uh, jasmine. I looked at some beautiful vining jasmine at all places, Lowe's yesterday, and I'm kicking myself for not picking up a pot or two of it. Smelled amazing. I was walking through the aisle, and I'm like, what, what, what? There's the smell of that. And I'm like, yeah. And I got this new project, and I'm, I'm going to be picking up some other herbs for it, and I think I'm going to drop some jasmine. It's a vining herb, and it's just beautiful smell. Delicious in teas, one of those things you use less is more type thing. It's it's more of an adjunctive herb. Another one is rosemary. Rosemary, of course, we think of, again, Italian cooking and things like that. And what I find rosemary is interesting to me. For my cooking, it's one of the few herbs I prefer dried. I really do. I, I like to I cut some fronds of it, let it dry out, and just strip them off into a jar, and it keeps for easily through your winter. In my climate... It, it barely even got knocked back by the hard freeze we had a few weeks ago, and it's it's already booming again. So I have fresh rosemary available at all times, and I like to use fresh in tea, dry for cooking, fresh in tea. And I use little tiny, just little trim off, you know, maybe 10 needles. And sometimes, if I don't want too much of it, because it is quite strong, I'll put it in toward the end of the immersion of the other tea, and I'll taste it. And when there's enough of it there, I'll go ahead and remove the the, the infuser. I'll give a link to some stuff where I have herbs I recommend that you can buy, a tea infuser and other stuff like that in the video notes as well today. Um, next up is calendula. Calendula is a great pot herb. It's a great tea herb. It's a great medicinal herb. It's a beautiful flower. Like, why wouldn't you grow this stuff? It attracts pollinators. Um, and it is easy to save seed from and plant over and over and over again. And if you are in a southern climate, as long as you can get it through your summers, it, it, it's almost perennial. It eventually will kind of go away, but man, it is a fantastic uh, flower, and I love for the tea, I primarily use the petals in teas, and they can be dried and saved long-term, or you can use them fresh, 
Fresh is kind of the way that I prefer. They give a buttery softness to teas. Uh, goji berry is one that people don't really think about uh, as a tea, but goji berry has two, actually three distinctive ways that it can be used as tea. The green leaves can be used very much like the green tea plant, only it's a much hardier plant that grows in places that the typical tea won't grow. But it actually has a very similar flavor profile to green tea when brewed fresh and green. You can also look up how to ferment it. You can do this with blackberry and raspberry leaves as well. You can ferment it and make a black tea out of it. So the leaves themselves have use. However, the berries, specifically if you dry and dehydrate the berries, when you throw like a small handful of those into your tea, what I do with that, I don't put them in the infuser. I put them right in the cup and I leave them float in the cup while I'm drinking it. And then at the end, you eat them. And they suck up the, the tea itself and they be plump back up and they bring a sweetness without actually using any real sugar. There's not much sugar in a goji berry. And a goji berry is a weird uh, critter to me. You take goji berries and you eat them off the plant and it's an acquired taste. It's not something you're going to sit down and eat a bowl of and if you do, you're going to evacuate the whole house when you visit the bathroom. So don't, if somebody did that, they ate like a bowl of them and they wrote me a letter. I'm like, no, don't do that. But it, it has a, a sourness and it's not really sweet and it has kind of a flavor that I think to some is off-putting. You dehydrate it. It turns into sweet. Like, kind of like a date does, you know? It's there, it's really an interesting thing and when it plumps back up, it's delicious. So you get the leaf and the berries. Next up, roses. We don't think of roses as an herb. They're an herb and maybe we don't grow roses directly in our dedicated herb garden, but if you have roses, the petals and the hips both are fantastic in tea. By the way, they make great mead too. Next up, uh, black and raspberry kind of mentioned already, but you can use the berries fresh, you can use the berries dried, and you can use the leaves of both black and raspberries. They're great tea, and they are, they're a cane fruit, but they're still in the herb family, believe it or not. Uh, and then my last one for you, is one that will conjure up images of you know medieval times or something like that. Mugwort. If you want to go to sleep, let me tell you, a little bit of mugwort infused in the evening tea kind of helps with that. It also tends to kind of bring around a bit more of a dreamy sleep in a good way. It is one you can also use too much of, so get a little bit of guidance from a recipe or something like that. My last three I have for you, you will probably have to buy... Um, you probably won't grow them in sufficient quantities, and one of them is actually illegal in some states to sell. Uh, and I believe to possess, and I'm looking at you, Louisiana, because you're as backwards as it's possible to be. And none of them are things you would think of as like, well, I'm going to go out and you know get high on this stuff or whatever. Uh, the first one is valerian root. Valerian root is a great sedative in a great way, and it's actually what they make Valium from, but unless you are getting stupid with it, you're not going to have that kind of effect. But it's a great uh, tea herb, except it tastes kind of like gym socks, in my opinion. Uh, but if you if you have that extra need, and I have a recipe for my sleep tea and dream tea that uses all of these, that will be a link in the notes below. Uh, the next one is Demania. Demania is, uh, is the one that's illegal in like six states or something like that. Uh, people started putting it in like herbal legal bud type things and it, it can do some things like that. It's not a real powerful or potent thing. There's no need for it to be illegal. Uh, it is one that I would, you know, limit the quantity. And again, I have a recipe including it. And then the next one's Passion Flower. Valerian is easy to grow, but you're not, 
to me, this is another one of those things like it's just easier to buy if you want it in quantity unless you have really great conditions for it and you really want to spend the time to dig it up, chop it up, and dry it. Um, you certainly can. Uh, Demania, I've never even tried to grow. I don't know. I don't really know if it would be easy, hard, whatever. And I don't know if maybe in some states maybe it would be attracting the department to make you sad. I can't really see that being much of a problem. Uh, most people I don't think would know what they were looking at if they looked at it. But I think it comes from like the, 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 the tropical areas in Africa more toward the equator. So it might be difficult to grow in most temperate climates, but I'm not sure on that one. Uh, the last one's passion flower. And, um, I think you can use kind of the, you know, the Maypop like temperate climate passion flower, but I've gotten much better results using more of a tropical passion flower. So unless you're growing that in, um, in like a greenhouse or something, or you live in South Florida or Southern, you know, California or very South Texas, you probably can't grow it, uh, reliably. Uh, so you want to pick it up. When I say passion flower, I'm not talking about the juice of the fruit. I'm talking about the actual flower themselves. So there you go. It's a long Miyagi, but it gave you a lot of options. But build your herb garden on a core of the four horsemen of the mint family. I'm telling you right now, guys, lemon balm, pepper, peppermint, bee balm, and spearmint can do so much for you just by varying the quantities of each. And don't be afraid to use some good old-fashioned green or black tea and do some blending and mixing like that. Have fun with it. Plant that herb garden. Learn about those herbs. Make them part of your life. I'll be back tomorrow to wrap up the week. Well, good morning, folks. Welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 75. So I want to stop and reflect on that for just a moment. So Miyagi Mornings began right after the fall workshop and uh, that I did here at Nine Mile Farm. Where I had about It was the biggest one we ever did. We had 65 students. We had, with staff and all, we were over 80 people. We, we found the capacity limit of my property there. We'll, we'll never go any bigger than that. That was it, man. There was there was no place left to park people that was good places to park people where you're not damaging the land, et cetera. Anyway, um, and I came out of that. And when we do, we usually do with the workshop, we kind of do a time where everybody that wants to talk stands up and says something they're taking away from it. And I said, I heard so much inspiration in this one that I'm going to do more. And one of the things I decided I was going to do was Miyagi Mornings. didn't have a name for it yet, but I knew I was going to do something new and something that would, would not be like a, a project. It would be an ongoing thing. And this just kind of spun out of that. 75 episodes ago, um, I did the first Miyagi Mornings the Monday after the workshop. And, guys, after a workshop, I'm worn out. And the reason I pause to say that is we're about to do it again. Next week, we will be doing a spring workshop. We'll be doing several builds, uh, perennial garden system, uh, which will focus on uh, vineyard and, and things for making meads and wines and stuff like that and herbs. Uh, and we'll also be doing uh, another build that focuses on, on growing uh, food for my, wild, for my uh, livestock uh, through the use of uh, uh, several different aquatic plants and some other systems that are going to use duck waste to feed ducks. It's a pretty cool thing. And so from one to the next, 75 episodes. And we're not stopping. We're going to keep rocking all the way on. And maybe we'll pause like this again uh, in the fall, right before the next one, and see what a year of this looks like. So thank you to everybody that's participated. And, again, the number one way you can participate in Miyagi Mornings is to get on MeWe. And that's where today's question comes from. This comes from Sin no, I'm sorry, Virginia. Cindy, I'm going to get to you next week because there won't be any Miyagi Mornings this coming week. So the following week we'll be back. And, Cindy, I'm going to get to you. If you know who you are, you probably do. You have the last post there. Virginia said, you've talked about earning interest by buying Algorand. Could we have your viewpoint on earning interest on cryptos via BlockFi 
or similar websites. For example, 6% on Bitcoin and almost 10% on U.S. dollar uh, tether. It varies from site to site. What say you? Okay. I'm going to break this into completely two separate things. I'm going to break it into interest on crypto that doesn't have a built-in reward system like Bitcoin. Okay. And I'm going to break it into to, to cryptocurrencies that have a built-in reward system like Algorand or ARK or Cardano or something like that. Proof-of-stake uh, currencies where you earn money by holding the currency directly. So DeFi that Cindy's asking about is where your money is actually put up and loaned out. That's how they get interest. So they loan it to others, they take and keep some of the interest for themselves, and they pay the balance of that interest to you. We'll get to that in a second. The first one, though, like an Algorand or an ARK or a Cardano or any of these cryptos that are you know, what we call altcoins, be careful in the first place in the altcoin market. It does not have the stability, and I know price volatility is one thing, but stability is another of a Bitcoin. Bitcoin's been around for 11 years. I, if somebody said, I'm putting all my money into Bitcoin that I have, I might be like, I don't know if I would do that, but I would also say it's probably going to work out. If you threw all your money into, and I mean all your money right into an altcoin, I'd be really concerned for you because you just don't know. So I always use smaller amounts. I, I talked on the podcast about this um, today, the, the expert counsel show that went out. I, I have a very small amount in alts. I'm like 90% plus uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum. And I only have the amount of Ethereum that I have because when it first came out onto Coinbase, it was extremely cheap. And I'm like, now nah, I'll buy a bunch of it because it was cheap. And I had Bitcoin sitting there, so I, I bought it. So otherwise, I would be probably far more weighted to Bitcoin than I am. Okay? You should just understand that. Because that's going to play into the next part of this answer. But if you are holding an Algorand or uh, Cardano or something like that, and you're like, but I just hold it on Coinbase and they pay me 6% or whatever. Get it off of Coinbase. Get it off of the exchange. Do you not understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? There will be two different types of currencies like this. There will be ones where you must hold them in their native wallet. That would be ARC. ARC is a delegated proof of stake. You have to vote in a delegate, etc. Um, and so you need the ARC wallet. It is literally about a 60-second process to install it and set it up. And it will be a little learning curve on voting for a delegate. Not hard to do. Get it done. On other cryptos, for instance, um, Cardano uh, and Algorand, you can either hold it on the native wallet and take care of it yourself, or you can hold it in a software wallet like Exodus where it's done for you, but you still hold your own private keys, which means no one else has any access under any circumstances to your cryptocurrency. That's what you want. Okay, and I'll get to why, one of the big reasons why, in a moment. But do not hold any currency that you do not have to hold on an exchange on an exchange. Because when you hold them on an exchange, they hold the keys. You don't have any cryptocurrency. You have a right to a certain amount of cryptocurrency they're holding on your behalf. And I don't like that. And in the condition of like a Cardano or whatever, there's no, there's no benefit to this to you. This doesn't benefit you at all. You could, you could use Exodus and give up a little bit of your interest, so what? But you still own your own private keys. And if you just like the convenience of a multi-currency wallet and you're willing to give up a little bit, who cares, right? Or you could get the actual wallet, take care of it yourself, and, and, and maybe do a little bit better on the interest rate, but not that much, honestly. Either one's fine. Or if you're like in with ARC, then ARC, you need to park it inside its own wallet and delegate a, a, a person. So 
that, that's all good and well, but there's no reason to hold any of those things like that on an exchange. When we get to BlockFi, we're in a little bit different of a situation. Still don't like it. Because it still works, you know, is it an exchange? Well, some of them are and some of them aren't, right? Some of them are straight up, all they are is about this type of, of financial scheme. And don't think that scheme is a bad word, it's just a way of doing things, right? And uh, so the way BlockFi works is you deposit money into an account there, a lot like a bank account, without FDIC insurance, though, of course. And they take your money, your crypto, and they loan it to another party. And if you read everything BlockFi, for instance, says, and they're like the biggest game in the business doing this, they, they are very clear about their security protocols, and it all sounds wonderful. And I'm sure they make best effort to do exactly what they say they do. They are a licensed uh, business. Uh, so your money is probably safe in the lending scheme portion of this alone, right? They are probably using smart contracts, and they have the ability to basically recall loans, etc., if they think there's a problem, etc. But when you get into loaning money, I don't know if you know this or not, sometimes people can't pay it back. Sometimes no matter what you do, there's an old saying, you can't get blood from a stone. When you work with a company like BlockFi, if they lend enough money to enough parties, that alone mitigates the risk. So if my money's in a pool, and, and, and there's a counterparty, BlockFi taking some of the risk, sharing it against thousands of people like me, and they're loaning to thousands of people on the other side, and Bill doesn't pay his bill, right? And unless he owes like a million Bitcoin or something like that, it's not that big a deal, and they're still going to be able to make it right on the other end. It's not like a Ponzi scheme where you got to have more money come in and more money go out. You have a real transactional relationship going on and some mitigation. Being able to earn money on Bitcoin. I like, and as of right now, I don't know a way that I can hold Bitcoin, earn interest on it, and maintain complete possession of my private keys, okay? I don't know a way to do that right now. So if I really felt that I really wanted to, to, to earn income on my Bitcoin holdings, the most attractive thing that I see is a BlockFi-type model. Right, that seems to be working pretty well for a lot of people and has for a fairly decent amount of time already. This is my concern. One of the things that I love about cryptocurrency is, let's say the United States government, for whatever reasons this guy, decides we're going after Jack Spierko. Well, the first thing they're going to do is drop my little social security number into uh, their little seeking database, and they're going to discover every asset they can with my name on it that they have access to. If my money's sitting in Coinbase or my money's sitting on BlockFi and they've done KYC, I just might pop up in that list. And then they can go to a BlockFi, they can go to a Coinbase, they can go to any of these exchanges or lending services or places that hold your money on your behalf and say, here is a legal document stating that you must turn this person's assets over to us or that you must freeze them. Got it? That can happen. And I know a lot of you are thinking, well, that's never going to happen to me. Everybody that it happens to thought it would never happen to them. We've had people attack just because of the size of certain deposits or transfers look like a pattern. This shit happens, right? Look it up if you doubt me. 
So, you could be just doing some stuff in your bank account, moving some money around, but they think that you're trying to stay under a reporting requirement or something just because the numbers worked out that way, and all of a sudden there's a suspicious activity report, and all of a sudden they're looking into your taxes. Maybe they you, know, you accidentally show up on an audit, and, and you see what I'm saying? And I know people who have had their assets seized by state governments as well, like Massachusetts, for instance, because you know, they're broke all the time, so they extort their own people. Um, now, Let's say that the United States government figures out exactly how much Bitcoin I have, exactly how much Ethereum I have, exactly how much Bitcoin cash I have. They know I have it. And they say, give it to us. No. We're going to take it. Go ahead. We're going to seize it. Go ahead. I don't know what you're talking about, but go ahead. You see how that works? If you're sitting in some form of a place where you have a custodial account, meaning there's a custodian over your money, and the government comes after you, and they look to lock or seize your assets, there it is, like a giant ball in the sky, slowly moving with missile trackers on it. If you're holding your own keys, I don't know what you're talking about. What key? I lost it. You understand what I'm saying? When you go into a DeFi model, from what I can see on the outside, because I haven't done this in full disclosure on that, you're now moving into a place where you have a custodial managed account. Now, if it could be done some way like what Polarity does. What Polarity does amounts to, it's almost like a cloud-based software wallet where you hold your own keys. This is, an ex a, a, this is not a DeFi, this is a DEX, a decentralized exchange. So if you could create an environment where I control my keys... And I can truly withdraw my money and stop earning interest anytime you want. And I can do that without saying, my name is Jack Spiracle and I live at da-da-da-da and here's all my digits. If I can do that, I might, I might, I might be interested. However, I would be very suspect to that because it doesn't make sense. Unlike fiat dollars, you can't print more Bitcoin. So it's not like they can take my money and print more money to loan against like a bank does. So that's how banks, so banks don't actually loan your money out. They hold your money, and if a bank's holding a million dollars, they can loan out nine million dollars that doesn't exist. This is one reason cryptocurrency makes sense, because you can't freaking do that. Well, that would make it very difficult for somebody to lend against your crypto if you maintained custody, if they didn't have any custody over it. So I see an inherent privacy weakness. I see an inherent defense against the state or creditors or anybody else problem there. Let's say somebody sues you. And in Discovery, they find that you have these accounts. See what I'm saying? Where if you're holding it, in, it's, this, it's, the, it's money that exists, even if you know they have, you can't make the person give it to you. Do you understand what I'm saying? I hope you do. This is why if I were going to do this, and as of right now, I am not. I think there's enough appreciation in Bitcoin that there's other ways I can make some money than risking this. But if I were going to do it, I certainly wouldn't take all my Bitcoin and put it into something like DeFi. I would, uh, or BlockFi, I guess is what it's called. Maybe 10%. Maybe 10%. But I want the majority of my crypto at all times directly under my control where the entire response to give us your crypto is go screw yourself in the butt with a rusty cheese grater twice. Bye-bye. But we want it. I want an angel. 
and I want a rainbow farting unicorn. And I want my angel to slide down the rainbow anytime I have a wish and grant me a wish. But I'm not getting what I want, and you aren't either. There's a beauty to that in cryptocurrency. And when you hold your wealth on an exchange, you might as well be holding your wealth in a bank account. Understand that. Again, for now, the only exception I know to that is polarity. I think there are other DEX exchanges that have a similar way that the wallet works. And, guys, if you want an exchange that's okay to hold some of your money on because you want to keep it there for trading or whatever, or maybe it's just convenience, then, then that's what I would do. But for earning rewards, I don't think you can do that there. Um, if you have rewards-based crypto, get it into a native wallet or a wallet that's, that's non-custodial that supports rewards. Take care, guys, and we will get back with you later. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Miyagi Morning Recap. Remember, I do Miyagi Mornings to create short and shareable content for your friends and family who may not be up to listening to an entire podcast. Each of these segments from today's show is only five to eight minutes long and can be shared as both YouTube or Odyssey videos. Links to the video files for each segment are in today's show notes. If you want to submit a question for Miyagi Mornings, just email jack at com with Miyagi Mornings in the subject line. All subjects other than politics are welcome for this special series. <laughs>